as he stands in victory, right? That's the message of today. That's the message of every, every Lord's Day. And that's the message we want to declare right now. Would you bow with me? Let's begin our time in God's Word with a word of prayer. Father in heaven, Lord God, you are truly an awesome and amazing and holy God. You are great. As we have sung this morning in one voice and with one heart, we, we declare your greatness and we declare your goodness. Lord God, we are humbled to be together with your people, to be drawn into your presence that you have been waiting on us. And you have been waiting for this moment when we would draw near, when we would celebrate in the, in the light of dawn, not just the dawn of another day or the dawn of another week, but the dawn of, of resurrection life that you bring to us, God, through, through the blood of Jesus, through the empty tomb. Lord God, this is the message. We pray that you would write on our hearts today. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Let's all say together, amen. At the height of the, the Nazi regime, while millions of Jewish men and women were being killed in extermination camps, mimeographed pamphlets began appearing throughout Germany denouncing the Nazi tyranny. And these were distributed and produced by a group calling themselves the White Rose. And in these pamphlets, The message was aimed at rousing German citizens from their moral and spiritual slumber. Hitler, according to the White Rose, was was evil. He was leading Germany deeper into darkness. And in one of these leaflets produced by the White Rose, leaflet number four, the White Rose explicitly framed the struggle with, with Hitler and what was going on in Germany at the time. They framed that struggle in terms of moral and spiritual battle. Listen to this. Every word that proceeds from Hitler's mouth is a lie. When he says peace, he means war. And when he names the name of the Almighty in a most blasphemous manner, he means the Almighty evil one, that fallen angel, Satan. They close with this line, we will not keep silent. We are your bad conscience. The white rose will not leave you in peace. Those words constituted high treason. To speak such words, to write such words, to distribute such words, the White Rose was flirting with death. Whoever they were, they were committing a heinous act. Now, widely revered as heroes in Germany, the White Rose was a handful of students from the University of Munich, most of them Christian. And among the leaders of the White Rose movement were the siblings, Sophie and Hans Scholl. On February 19th, it was February 18th, 1943, the Scholl siblings were observed distributing what would be known as leaflet number six of the White Rose. They were arrested and quickly brought up for trial before one of the most notorious of the Nazi hanging judges. And standing before that Nazi court, both Hans and Sophie remained defiant. Addressing the court, Sophie refused to back down, instead saying, what we wrote is also believed by many others. They just don't dare express it themselves, as we have. Well, the Shoals were quickly declared guilty. They were guilty of treason, they were sentenced to death, and the Nazis didn't waste any time. The execution was scheduled to take place on that very same day. 
And Sophie Scholl's cellmate preserved her, some of her final words. Listen to what Sophie said before they took her away to face the guillotine. How can we expect righteousness to prevail when there is hardly anyone willing to give himself up individually to a righteous cause? On February 22nd, 1943, at 5 p.m., Hans and Sophie Scholl were beheaded by the Nazis. But the message of the White Rose lived on. That little pamphlet, that final leaflet, pamphlet number six of the White Rose, it was smuggled out of Germany. It found its way into the hands of the Allied forces. And thousands of copies of that leaflet were made. And a few months after their passing, in July of 1943, Allied planes dropped thousands of those same leaflets over the sky of Germany. The words of the White Rose, those defiant words, lived on. I suppose that White Rose movement will be remembered for a long time. Remembered as an act of resistance in the face of violence and evil. Again, its members willfully risked their lives by by standing up to the forces of darkness. Put another way, the members of the White Rose willingly picked a fight, knowing what it might cost them, but they did so believing in the righteousness of their cause. And I'm sure you can see the connection with what draws us together today. Because today we come to remember a similar act of resistance, although the one that we remember today will be remembered long after even the heroic and courageous events of these members of the White Rose fade from our memory. But make no mistake, we come together today to remember the message, to remember the story, to remember the time when Jesus himself stood up, stood up to the faces, to, to, to the forces of evil and wickedness, stood up to the forces of hell that were bent on corruption and destruction. When Jesus took Satan's best shot and defiantly picked a fight with those forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Today we come together to remember the words that the Apostle Paul spoke over in the book of Colossians. When he tells us that Jesus disarmed the powers and authorities, that he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that any king who dies on the cross must be the king of a rather strange kingdom. And that was indeed the thought process in the ancient world. It was the thought process as they crucified Jesus. It was the thought process in a world where the, the cross was understood as an instrument of torture, an instrument of shame, a tool in the hands of Rome to bring about death, to keep law and order. You fast forward some 2,000 years, and now the cross has become something else for us. The cross has become the cultural icon of Christianity. It is the dominant expression in the world. When you see that cross, many people understand that that is a symbol of Christianity. But you also look at where we are as a culture today, where 
The cross has become somewhat tamed. The, the cross has become somewhat domesticated. What I mean by that is that I'm, I'm afraid that the proliferation of the cross has led us to, to view, at least for some, to view the cross as little more than something ornamental, something to be worn, like a, a piece of jewel, jewelry worn on a, on a necklace. What is the meaning of the cross? Well, as we've been saying for weeks now, John is telling a story in his gospel that is unique. He's telling a story, and that story is pointed at us. It's pointed at at those who would dare to read it. And that message challenges us to, to daring faith, to dare to believe in this message. And we've reached now the, the critical moment in the story, the moment upon which everything hinges. But in order to understand what John is trying to say to us about the cross, we have to back up and look at a scene that we covered a few weeks ago. It's the scene where where Jesus gathers his disciples together, and just before the events unfold that we've been remembering and singing about and that we will celebrate and commemorate in just a few moments around this table, before all that unfolds, Jesus puts the towel around his waist. And in John chapter 13, he stoops low to wash the feet of his disciples. Just before he does, listen to what God's word in John 13 has to say to us as John frames up this story. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and to go back to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Dropping down to verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. So we pause right there. As, As his time with the disciples is drawing down, the meter is running, the clock is ticking, and Jesus knows this because he knows that the time has now come for him to leave the world. And so everything Jesus does from here on out is intentional and purposeful. And so he stoops low to wash the feet of the disciples, and and John says that this is a way in which Jesus is going to show them the full extent of his love. But we understand that Jesus didn't just come to earth for this moment where he could wash the feet of the disciples. No, Jesus doesn't ascend to heaven as soon as he is finished washing those feet. No, he washes those feet because that is a, a window, that is a foretaste of what is about to happen at a large, in a much larger, more cosmic way. The foot washing, as much as we can glean from it, as much as it is an expression of love and service, it is merely a foretaste of the loving service Jesus will demonstrate on the cross. And note the way John stresses this point. That the Father has put all things under his power. That the Father in heaven has put all things under the power of Jesus. That is a really triumphant note to strike, isn't it? Considering everything that we know that is about to unfold. Considering that the guards are going to come and get him in just a few moments. And they're going to take him out back. They're going to beat him bloody. And they will present him before Herod and before Pilate. And all that is about to transpire. And and the very act of, of, of crucifying him and nailing him to a cross, the ultimate expression of Rome's power in Jesus' day, John is very clear in this. He's saying God has put all things under the power of Jesus. And he wants us to know this before we even reach the cross. 
And this is central to our message this morning. This is the only thing I want to communicate this morning. This one point would be this, that the Father has put all things under the power of Jesus, and that means that Jesus remains in complete control to the very end. From start to finish, in this crucifixion message, John would have us know that Jesus holds all the cards. That all power rests and resides in Jesus and in Jesus alone. No one lays a finger on Jesus without him letting it happen. No one takes Jesus into custody without his permission. No one drives the first nail through his flesh without Jesus willing it to be so. This is the power of the cross. And so we've been talking about the way John tells the story. And we've noted now for the past couple of weeks that whenever John, whenever Jesus in John speaks of glory, he's referring to the cross. He sees the cross as this moment of tremendous glory, when heaven's glory is fully revealed. And the, the question in, in Jesus' day is likely the same question that some of us ask as we hear this. Well, what is so glorious about crucifixion on a cross? Again, Rome's point here is that this is, a, this is an expression of the glory of Rome, not the kingdom of God. And yet the glory resides in this place, that this is the willful choice of Jesus. And by stressing that the Father has placed all things under the power of Jesus, John is saying that the cross didn't just happen to Jesus. That Jesus is not a victim in the events that are about to transpire. That the, the cross was the willful choice of Jesus Christ. And he embraces it, brothers and sisters. He embraces the cross as, as a way of expressing both the glory and the love of our God. And he does so by remaining in complete control throughout. He remains in complete control when the guards come to get him. We're going to move over now to John chapter 18. It says that when he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and he crossed the Kidron Valley. And on the other side, there was an olive grove and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there. He'd met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and he asked them, Who is it that you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. And when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and they fell down to the ground. So picture the scene. Judas and this, this detachment of soldiers, they, they come ready to arrest Jesus and they have their torches and they have their weapons and they have their pitchforks and they're ready to find Jesus and Jesus steps out, and he knows what's about to happen, but he has a little fun here, I think. He steps forward, and he says, who is it that you're looking for? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. I am he. Or a shorter version, I am. And in this 
moment when, when Jesus says this. It's as if the, the crowd that has come to, to get him, it's as if this, this lynch mob understands exactly what is happening and that the power of his own word and his confession of his identity, they retreat, they, they, they draw back. I picture this reverberation of, of power as Jesus declares who he is and they fall down to the ground. And only John tells us this detail. And, and maybe John wants us to look back and remember another time. When those same words, that same idea of God saying, I am, that it caused someone else to fall down to the ground. Like when Moses took off his sandals because he recognized he was on holy ground, he was talking to God out of the burning bush and God said, I am. Maybe John wants us to remember that as well. But there's something beautiful and and a little bit ironic about this because the power brokers in the temple, the chief priests and the Pharisees and all of those who've been conspiring to get Jesus off of the scene, they won't recognize who Jesus is. They won't bow before the power of his name, but their lynch mob will. Jesus says, I am he. And in this moment, he stands in complete and total control. Notice Notice that he's in control with the power of his own word. John has told us that Jesus is God in the flesh. He's told us that from the very beginning. So so as God in the flesh, as the word of God, his slightest command can cause that lynch mob to fall down, to fear and to revere Jesus. His slightest word could have turned their swords into plowshares. And yet... He allows them to take him into custody. It's not in the text, but I can picture Jesus thinking to them, okay, come on, time to get up. You know, I'm the one that you came looking for, so go ahead, just hop up. I, I can't very well arrest myself, okay? So you have a job to do, and so do I. Let's, let's get this thing going, chop, chop. Nothing happens to Jesus without him willing it because he remains in complete control during his arrest. He also remains in complete control as he stands before Pilate. Uh, As the crowd gathers and they start chanting, crucify him, crucify him, Pilate is unmoved. He says, I don't find any reason to to crucify him. I don't find any charges against him at all. And the the crowd pushes back. They say, well, he claims to be the son of God, so he deserves to die. And over John chapter 19, John records this. He said, when Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace and, and he says to Jesus, where do you come from? Jesus gave him no answer. And Pilate said, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize that I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? And Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. (laughs) Pilate's probably not used to the silent treatment. He doesn't take to it too well. Pilate says to Jesus, don't you, don't you understand that I can either free you, I can let you go, or I can have you killed? And really, the, the choice is, is yours. There's a little bit of pride in Pilate's statement. Do you hear that in, in his voice as you read that? It's as if he's saying, you know, this is the moment, Jesus, where you grovel at my feet. This is the point where you beg for your life, and I decide whether you live or die, because all the power resides right here. And Jesus looks at Pilate. And he says, power? You don't have any power over me? The only power you have 
over me. It was given to you by my Father above. Your power comes from the place where I come from, Jesus says. Jesus doesn't flinch. He is totally in control and, I might add, totally fearless. And John makes it clear. Again, they can't arrest Jesus. They can't lay a finger on Jesus. They can't convict Jesus without his permission because all power rests with him. And he even remains in power as he is hanging on the cross. A little later down there in John chapter 19, starting in verse 25, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. His mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Even as his life is ebbing away, Jesus remains in complete control. To the degree that he arranges, he makes arrangements for his mother. It doesn't sound like Jesus is is the victim of of some sort of murderous plot. It sounds as if Jesus is in total control of the moment. And he knows before he goes, before this happens, I need to take care of my dear mother. So he makes this arrangement for Mary. Because even to the very end, Jesus remains in control of his household. And then... As John closes out this scene. Later, knowing all that was now completed, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there, and they soaked a sponge in it. They put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. And with that, he bowed his head. And he gave up his spirit. No one kills Jesus. Jesus decided to die. He decided when it was finished. And Jesus decided it wasn't finished until he fulfilled every scripture that foretold the events of that moment. So again, we picture him hanging there. And he knows there's this one final scripture to be fulfilled. And so he cries out, I'm thirsty. And then as that scripture is fulfilled, John says it so very carefully. Jesus is the one to give up his spirit. Nobody kills him. Nobody arrests him. Nobody puts him on trial. Nobody lays a finger on him without the willful consent of Jesus. And he willfully consents to this shameful death on the cross as an expression of him remaining in complete and total control. Because the message of the cross is about his lordship. With all things under his power, the cross does become for Jesus that moment of glory. Because when Jesus looks at the the cross, you know what he sees? He sees a throne. He sees the cross as that throne of self-emptying love. For us, we might look at it and see a piece of jewelry. For the ancient world, they look at it and they, they see it as an expression of torture. But Jesus has this radical view of the cross because when he looks at the cross, he sees a throne. Because he knows he must go through that in order to win this kingdom back to God. So he chooses it. He remains in complete control. 
from start to finish. But he willfully chooses it. When Jesus chooses the cross, he is engaged in spiritual warfare at a level that we can barely even understand. He's engaged in that spiritual warfare that Paul talks about over in Ephesians chapter 6. When he talks about those powers of the dark world and those evil forces, those spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. And so when Jesus willfully chooses the cross, he is picking a fight with these evil forces. He is defiant and he refuses to back down. He believes in the righteousness of his cause. And as I told you, long after even things that are as as heroic and inspiring as the message of the white rose, long after those messages fade from memory, we will be singing this song because it is the song of eternity that Jesus Christ has won a spiritual victory at the cross and the empty tomb. The empty tomb declares the scope of his victory over these evil forces. And I want you to know this. I know we're reading through a lot of Bible passages and, 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 and talking a lot about spiritual warfare and all these kinds of things, but this is, this is where this message becomes, I believe, really practical and accessible for all of us. If Jesus remained in complete control from start to finish throughout this entire message, throughout this entire telling of the gospel story, then he remains in complete control even now to this very day. Because the cross is his throne. And nothing can happen to dethrone Jesus. We live in a world that is cruel and harsh. We live in a world full of nightmares. We worry about Russia, Syria, Afghanistan, North Korea, for good reason, right? Some weeks, it's the news out of Washington that might give us a little bit of anxiety, This week, here in this state, there's news out of Montgomery. A news report that I read this week claims that we are just on the brink. We are overdue for a global pandemic. So we can add that to our list of worries, I guess. Meanwhile, around the world right now, there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people dying because they don't have access to clean drinking water. ISIS claimed responsibility for a bombing of of a Coptic Christian church over in Egypt exactly one week ago, injured over 100, killed more than 40. And all the while, things like cancer, estrangement, depression, sex trafficking, grief, shame, all of those things take their toll on us. And all of that can conspire to make us ask the question, is anybody in control? I mean, is, it, is there anybody in control out there? Are the forces of good? Is there any kind of power over this dark and evil world? Because, yeah, it seems like there's some control, but it's all on the, on the wrong sideline, right? And that's the question of Good Friday. That had to be the question of those who were sitting there watching him hang on that cross. It wasn't supposed to go like this. So who's in control? That's the question of Good Friday. That's the question of 1943. And that's the question some of us limp in here asking today. Is there anybody in control? But the cross and the empty tomb, they tell a different story, don't they? They tell a story of hope and redemption and the, the power of the Almighty God to bring life to snatch it from the jaws of death, to overturn 
the reality of evil in our world. And there's still a lot of fighting to be done. There's still a lot of history to be played out, I'm assuming. But it's played out beneath the banner of hope. Beneath the banner of the the power that we draw from the throne that tells the story of his victory. The victory of self-giving and self-emptying love. Now, the cross was the willful choice of Jesus. And the empty tomb is the ultimate declaration of what God has done. That God is indeed in control from start to finish. In control to the very end. So this isn't just a story about what happened one weekend 2,000 years ago. It's a message that speaks to our reality even today. That our God reigns even today. And that, brothers and sisters, is the power and the glory of the cross. What can take a dying man and raise him up to life again? What can heal a wounded soul? What can make us white as snow? What can fill the emptiness? What can mend our brokenness? Brokenness, mighty. from 